Welcome to City Life Church, and this is our podcast. This is Pastor Dave Diefendorf, and we are so honored to have you join us today. Our passion is to help you discover who God is, grow in the likeness of Jesus, and lead well in this generation. I hope in this message, God will meet you where you're at and take you to the next level in your connection with Him and His kingdom. Enjoy the message. Morning, morning. We are uh, we're in the middle of the series. We've been looking at these seven churches in Revelation, and uh, hopefully you've been enjoying it. If it's your first Sunday, don't worry. You can jump right in. You won't miss anything. So, um, well, just to kind of start off, by a show of hands, how many grew up having what's known as a family meeting? How many had family meetings when you grew up? All right. About a third. Third had family meetings. Now, uh, I don't know about you. We, we, I didn't have uh, many family meetings growing up, though my family has many family meetings. Now, uh, sometimes families do family meetings to uh, communicate something important, whether it's uh, maybe there's a conflict going on in the house that's just not resolving. Hey, family meeting time. Let's, let's talk this out. What's, let's go on. Let's, let's get upstream what happened way back? Let's resolve that. Um, another, another reason for a family meeting might be uh, maybe one of the parents have, have a career change and uh, they may have to move or, um, you know, some big decision as a family. Family meetings are really important to have. But for some, I know some family meetings might have been overused. <laughs> but if there was anything the parent needed to control, uh, within the house, let's have a family meeting. So sometimes family meetings can be a little intimidating. Uh, but really, family meetings is a chance for uh, parents to shepherd and guide and instruct the course of their family to, to be on better grounds, to be uh, more fruitful, to be more uh, joyful and uh, in life. So these letters to the church's uh, in Revelation are like family meetings for these churches, <laughs> that God, Jesus, needs to communicate some specific things to these seven specific churches in the first century, and they kind of have the style of a little family meeting, where uh, he uh, gives a nice announcement, he tells them, hey, man, I see the great things that are going on in the midst of you, but then he comes with sometimes a little correction. And of the seven, only two kind of don't get any correction. So most of it is a little correction. So we're just going to look at these. What, what were some of the corrections that Jesus gave these first century churches? And what can we glean from it today? So I think you're going to get a lot out of it. Maybe God will shepherd us here uh, with our kind of maybe little family meeting. All right. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, God, we thank you for the power of your word and the strength of your Holy Spirit, God, to illuminate your word, to speak to our hearts no matter where we're at with you. God, we pray that we would just come before you and uh, this morning and just be an open heart, open ears, to have you speak to our heart, speak to our lives, speak to the future that we envision over our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this week, we're going to look at this church from the church of Pergamum. And before we kind of get to the text, I just want to give a little background as to this city and this church specifically that we know of. Pergamum 
uh, served as a capital. There's a little map up there. We could probably have that on. Pergamum served as the capital of Alexander the Great's successor like Machus and was bequeathed to Rome in 133 B.C. So this became the property of Rome from uh, a very influential leader in kind of the Greek movement. Pergamum was a center of emperor worship all across Asia. So as you can see, Italy, where Rome is, it crosses over into what's modern-day Turkey, and this becomes the center of Caesar uh, imperial worship for all of Asia. And so many Romans would, Mecca, would, would travel and pilgrimage to Pergamum to worship Caesar. Inscriptions proclaim the dignity of the city is the first city in Asia to erect a temple to Caesar Augustus. And so they began to have an emperor worship religion within Rome. And a major threat to Christians in Pergamum came from its role as the center of worship in Asia. And so this is, this is kind of a, uh, an important city. And it's a function with what being, you know, capital city. So Caesar worship, let me just a little bit about that. Caesar worship required each citizen once a year to offer a pinch of incense to Caesar on his altar and profess him as Lord. If you were a Roman citizen, this is a, uh, a ritual that you would do every year. You'd go up to the temple, you'd give a pinch of incense, and you would give it in honor or worship of Caesar. And the citizen was then given a certificate valid for one year, which allowed him to worship Whatever gods or gods he preferred, they preferred with impunity. So if you did this one act to worship Caesar, you got carte blanche authority for the rest of the year to worship whatever god you want. But you got to make the pinch of incense to Caesar. And so Pergamum was a university city famous for its library of 200,000 parchment scrolls. This rivaled the Library of Alexander uh, at the time that we find in Egypt. That's the that's the other little A down at the bottom. That's the Library of Alexandria. Well, the Library of Pergamum recruited the librarian from Alexandria to come and organize their books in, books in Pergamum. Well, most of the uh, manuscripts uh, at the time uh, were papyrus. Okay, so they, they came out of Egypt, these papyrus, and because of the rivalry that recruiting their librarian did, it's kind of a weird story. It's kind of a nerdy story to start this off, but it's kind of interesting, all right? So anyway, so the library in Alexandria uh, ceased shipping the, the, uh, the other library, uh, Pyrus, and so they had to come up with a different type of something to write on. And so Pergamum was the first place that came up with parchment, parchment paper. So actually, uh, this is just, yeah, I'll just, indeed, the parchment was invented in Pergamum for when its king decided to establish a library and entice this librarian to come up. The Egyptian king banned the export of papyrus to Pergamum. They forced Pergamum scholars to find an alternative writing material, and they invented parchment. Parchment lasts much better than papyrus, and so this invention played a huge part in preserving the Bible throughout the centuries. So anyway, I thought that was kind of interesting. Anyway, so big university town, big capital city, a lot of Caesar worship, a central piece, a central capital city for Rome in the region. So here we go. Revelation 2, 
12. I write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum. This is the message from the one with a sharp two-edged sword. Again, it kind of ends with or begins with a little introduction as to who the one is speaking. It's Jesus, the one who has this two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. It kind of reminds us of uh, of Hebrews 4.12 where it says, God's word is like a sharp two-edged sword that's able to pierce the soul and the spirit. It's able to divide our thoughts and intentions of our heart. And so in the same way, this one is coming with a sharp two-edged sword to do just that, to separate the soul and the spirit, the thoughts and intentions of this church he's going to comment on. So Revelation 12, 13, I know, so here's how it starts, this family meeting. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refuse to deny me, even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. Now, we usually don't hear phrases like that, right? Oh, that's Satan's city, right? That, that's not a very common phrase that we use in the 21st century. But some believe, some believe that this reference, this reference to Satan's throne goes beyond just general recognition of the pagan religious practices, that, that maybe something specific in this city, as Pergamum, it might have denoted this throne-like altar to Zeus. Now, there's a picture. Here's kind of a small replication of it. But this was the altar set on top of this hill overlooking Pergamum. So you'd be looking up at this mountain, and here's would be this massive temple to Zeus. And this is where you'd go up once a year to give that pinch of incense. It was also a place that you would go, through num- go to numerous times in the year to feast and celebrate and give sacrifices to the god. And there would be feasting and revelry all around this Caesar worship. It was said the most splendid monument of Pergamum was the altar of Zeus. It's a lofty pagan shrine that could have been seen as Satan's throne. Then let's go to this other picture. This is kind of a rendering of what it might have looked like in Pergamum. So here's this altar, this temple to Zeus. And in the background, there's this famous amphitheater that Pergamum was known for. Uh, it kind of used the natural layout. But this is on top of a... In, Overlooking is a huge valley, and it overlooks all over the area. And so it actually looks like a throne, like physically. It looks like a throne. Satan's throne also, it's like, where's this throne come from? Denotes the activities of the, I thought this was interesting, the secret mystery religions. Alexander Hislop, who is an author of this book, Two Babylons, gives a lot of documentation to show that Pergamum had inherited the religious mantle from Babylon. That a lot of the ancient mystery schools and ancient mystery religions of Babylon that find its roots all the way back to Nimrod of Babel, that those ancient mystery religions, all those books when uh, Babylon got sacked, is they went to Pergamum. And so not only is this kind of like Caesar worship kind of flowering out in Pergamum, but the ancient secret mystery religions all the way back, the esoteric teachings from, it's amazing, Nimrod. So what could this throne of Satan, the city of Satan, 
mean? It's probably either Caesar worship or these ancient mystery religions that are finding its way and kind of growing in a new place of Pergamum. So, with all this, they're surrounded by, the Lord calls out their faithfulness and loyalty. If Jesus is recognizing that, we surmise that loyalty to him is extremely important to his heart. That you've remained loyal. I, I see it. I notice your loyalty to me. Even in the midst of a city where all this stuff is going on, I see your loyalty to me. And it seems as if there's been a martyr already in their church, Antipas. It's likely that Antipas died for refusing to worship the emperor because only the emperor Colt had the permission to execute, and he was executed. And so we can kind of surmise that he probably refused to worship Caesar, and they're persecuting him, persecuted him, killed him for that. So this is the environment going on. And he's like, man, in this city with all this temptation and distraction around you, I see your loyalty. Amazing job, Church of Pergamum. But verse 14, he says, but I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Now, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the Nicolaitans, but we'll get there in a second. Who the heck is Balaam and Balak? You don't really see those names anymore. You know, you don't have a good buddy named Balaam. It's not so much of a, a common name anymore, but what's this story all about? Well, in Numbers 22 through 25, it tells us a story of Israel coming up against this nation called Moab. And Moab's king was Balak. And he was wanting to curse the nation of Israel by the gods because he knew he, knew he needed that kind of power, the supernatural power. This battle that he was facing, he knew it's a little bit more spiritual than his natural eye would give credit. And so he recruits this guy named Balaam. Balaam was... A soothsayer, a, a psychic, you could kind of say. Um, he was one that communed kind of with the dead. He was, he was kind of a mystical mystic. And so Balak, the king, asked Balaam to curse the nation of Israel. Hey, you're my spiritual guru. Could you curse the nation of Israel? It's kind of a weird story, but he kind of goes and prays, and God, the Lord, tells him what he wants him to do. Anyway, long story short, he ends up blessing the nation of Israel, and the king gets upset. And it seems like behind the closed doors that he convinces Balaam to tell me how we can conquer the nation of Israel. If we can't curse them by our gods, how are we going to beat them? And in Numbers 25, it's interesting. It says, and the nation of Israel began intermingling with the Moabites, sleeping with kind of the Moabite people, so they were having sexual relations kind of with the Moabite people, and through that kind of sexual relations, it began to turn into worship of Baal, worship of Baal that was the god over Moab that ended up being the god kind of all over the whole region and therefore ended up being the god over Babylon. This god of Baal was awful. If you were a follower of Baal, you, you, would, you would worship Baal by having sex with the Baal prostitutes. That would be your act of worship in the temple. If you, were, if you were a Moabite 
that worshipped Baal, a lot of times you would find you or one of your close friends would be offering up their youngest child to Baal for that year. And it was, tr- it was tremendously evil. But it was like through the subtleness of just the Moabite men and women seducing the nation of Israel through sex. It's so amazing how when you look through the life and death of cultures, whenever a culture is dying, sex becomes huge. It destroys societies. Balaam is credited with seducing Israel to abandon Yahweh for the gods of Moab. It didn't happen all at once. It happened through the slow seducing of the nation of Israel into worshiping Baal. In the similar way, he's like, hey, you've got people like Balaam and Balak in your midst, in your generation, in the first century. It's like, yeah, that's an old story, but the same thing kind of tends to recur. Similar way, finding a teaching that doesn't want to draw a hard line against the ways of the world, that wants to find a compromise way of being able to serve God fully, yet not being able, to, not, not being too uh, different other than the people of the world. So who are the Nicolaitans? We commented about it a few weeks ago, but he was, they were followers of Nicholas of Antioch. We find him in Acts 6 getting appointed as a deacon to the church with Stephen and a few others. And uh, this is now 35, 40 years later after that. And Nicholas, or at least his followers, took Nicholas's kind of teaching about the flesh and they twisted it. And Irenaeus, a church father, said that they live lives of unrestrained indulgence. Another church father said he was that confirmed that this Nicholas was one of the seven. And he departed from correct, correct doc, doctrine and was in the habit of inculcating indifference to food and sex. Food and sex. It doesn't matter. It's just the body. God has your soul. God has your mind. You're not, you're not really all that. You're, you're, you're kind of this di- dichotomized being. Really, your spirit matters, and the body doesn't really matter. This is kind of... This kind of uh, inklings of Gnostic kind of teaching that we find with the Nicolaitans. But let's see if we can identify their point of view and their teaching a little more. Um, it says that they seduced, the Israel, seduced God's people by eating meat, offering to idols, and into immorality. And when we get, just another side note, when we get to um, Acts 15 and the Council of Jerusalem, it's interesting because there was this big fight over Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Um, Jewish believers, there were some Jewish believers, not all, but there were some that felt that if, you, if a Gentile was to become a Christian, that they have to become a Jew, really, uh, and, and kind of come under the 613 laws of the Old Testament if you want to serve God wholeheartedly. Because Jesus was a Jew, and we can't throw the, the law away. And so there were, there were some Gentiles that were kind of making the other camp nervous. And so they just said, hey, they don't have to follow the law, but there's two things that they must do. Abstain from sexual immorality and stop eating meat sacrificed to idols. These are the very two things that Jesus is calling out in this church of Pergamum. Stop doing those things. 
And they may have just been thinking, man, it's just a pinch of incense. Man, it's not a big deal. God knows my heart. You know? It's like, hey, he knows. He knows. It's like, man, this whole, he kind of understands. Um, if, or, or it might just be, man, just, just a little bit of kind of compromise with the world. Man, it can bring a lot of peace with my pagan neighbors. If I could just get along to go along, I, I could just, I, this could work. This could totally work. In the temple, Agora, the Roman marketplace, all the meat was sacrificed to the gods of Rome. Some was eaten there with wine and feasting and sexual reverie, and some was brought home, and you'd eat that at home. And so the believers were kind of wrestling with this. How do we eat? And so they, they eventually just said, hey, we can't go to the temple and be doing all that. Well, anyway. The more elite ones in culture, now think about this, Roman culture. Let's remind ourselves a little bit what Roman culture was like. You, if, you were a, if you were a wealthy male, let's say you were kind of in the upper class. If you were a wealthy male, yeah, you call, probably could have a wife to birth maybe some of your children from your own bloodline. But um, it, was, it was pretty common that if you were a wealthy man, you would have kind of boy and girl servants at your disposal for any need that you may have. That was pretty common. Everyone lived that way if you were on that echelon of society. And I would imagine that when they became Christians, that you laying down your life for your wife as Christ did for the church, I'm sure that shocked most men coming into the church. Yeah, you're used to your wife submitting to you, but now you need to lay your life down for your wife. One. No more sexual immorality. And I'm sure for the upper class people, that was probably an uncomfortable position to be in. Because then your friends would notice, hey, your boy, your little boy and your little girl aren't traveling around with you anymore. What's going on? And also, now you have kids and grandkids of people that, that helped start the church in Pergamum. And a teaching that would diminish holiness and allow for more compromise with the world would definitely be appealing. You know, you don't have to be as holy as your grandparents thought you needed to or your parents thought you needed to. You, can, you don't have to be that holy. You could just make a little more compromise and just get along with the world. That teaching is equally as appealing. The law is ended, therefore there's no laws. And we're entitled to do what we like. They confused godly liberty with unbiblical license. And they were the very kind of people whom Paul urged in Galatians 5. For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. Huge different outcome to your liberty. What's it for? Not for your own flesh. It's so that you can live full of joy and life the way God designed you, full of that abundant life so you can go serve and love other people. Tremendously different visions of what one's life could become. The Nicolaitans were not prepared to be different. They were the most dangerous of all heretics from a practical point of view. For if their teaching had been successful, the world would have changed Christianity 
and not Christianity, the world. And in this generation, we're finding that same kind of fight going on. Are we not experiencing the same thing? Churches all over embracing the narrative of our culture over that of the Scriptures. That's dangerous ground. Trying to merge the ways of God with the ways of the world. Diminishing anything sacred or God-ordained. Anything that's sacred, that God says is sacred. Nah, that doesn't matter anymore. It's not really sacred. It's just chemicals and feelings. doesn't really matter. But even if you're not a compromised church, there still can be an internal compromise in our own hearts. Compromise with the world. The value system of the world. The value system of success and money and fame and influence. The value system of happiness and pleasure and sexual license. That if you just pursue these things to the fullest extent that you'll feel full. And talk to anyone that has gone down those roads to a large extent and they realize they're cul-de-sacs going nowhere. And they, they get to a dead end and they realize, man, this is a dead end. I'm not getting any life. And so here at this family meeting, oh, we want to still play both sides. We want to hedge our bets we, still try to, we want to still try to pursue the things of God and still try to pursue the things in the world that our will and our flesh just have a hard time giving up. And we excuse it all along the way. And we kind of have a thought, God gets me. Man, I got a, I got a special ticket to the man upstairs. Like, he, he's okay. And it's like, we know you think that because the light has yet to hit that darkness in your heart. And this is what he says. In this family meeting, verse 16, repent of your sin, or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Repent of your sin, or God will set up camp to resist you. Man, that's, that's not a good day. Where the creator of the universe sets up camp to say, I'm going to resist you with everything I got. Wow. Well, the cool thing is, is that we don't really know who the Nicolaitans are anymore, right? They died out pretty fast. But there's something that deep conviction is one of the greatest gifts God can give you. Sometimes we want to ignore that deep conviction. If, I, I, just, I don't want to go there. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of trauma. There's a lot of history. There's a lot of emotion there. I don't want to go there. I just want to move on. But God says we can't move on unless you repent. The things that you were holding on to, the things that you were turning to when things were going down, that has to end because Jesus is the only one that's going to fill that hole in your heart. It's not about other people. It's about me. It's not other people's issue. It's me. It's not that my, my life isn't awful because of other people. It's because of me. And that's a hard weight to bear but it's the actual reality. My sin has caused so much damage. So in the Gospels, it says, man, take the log out of your own eye before you take out the splinter of your neighbor. We can be some, so consumed with how awful our neighbor are, 
how bad our city is or what's going on in our nation. And it's like God's like, man, the first corrective action is you. You want to handle all that evil out there? Well, I want to handle the evil in you first. Ooh. And so we may not be a compromised church, but we could have compromised hearts. And it's the power of the gospel, seeing our brokenness and sin and rebellion against the cross of Christ who took upon himself our curse. And out of the sole goodness of God, he offers reconciliation to God who made you. <sighs> Repent of compromise if you find it in your heart. If there's any ways or beliefs that the world is ingrained in you that you're still holding on to as a follower of Jesus, if you are, the time is now to say, God, I'm going to let that go, and I'm going to trust you in your ways. Like a trapeze artist going from one bar to the next, you've got to let go of the one before you grab the other. You can't simultaneously hold on to one and grab the other. It'll split you in two, the momentum of all that. Well, not really, but you, it makes, you make it, have to make a choice. Do I hang on to the world? and all that it offers, and the games that I'm playing around to get what that offers, or am I just going to be one that is found solely on Christ, that I see what the world is offering, and I'm clinging to him no matter what? He says, repent, come back to God. Then in verse 17, anyone who has ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. To everyone who's victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hitting away in heaven. And I will give to each one a white stone, and on that stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. Now, as a preacher, I'd love to end on verse 16, but verse 17, there's so many Old Testament pictures that he's drumming up in these two sentences that it's just hard to get past. So, what is this? What is this promise to those who are victorious? I will give manna. Well, manna is set in direct contrast to the meat and food offered to the idols. It's like you're concerned about earthly food, but I've got spiritual food that you know nothing of. And it was the manna that God fed the nation of Israel as they went through the wilderness for 40 years, fed them every day with manna that fell from heaven. It was like, white coriander seed, bread-like crackers that they would eat, and it only lasted a day. They couldn't store it up. Their reliance and dependence upon God's daily provision. It was an intentional comparison between himself and the feeding of the Israelites in the wilderness when Jesus fed the multitude. God was establishing his covenant with the Israelites, and man, I'm going to feed you. And then Jesus is establishing a new covenant and he does the same thing. I'm going to feed you. Where did that bread come from? I have no clue. It just arrived. But then Jesus says this. In John 6, our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, we gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life into the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. It says those who are victorious, 
Jesus said that he will give you manna that's been hidden away. Who is that manna? It's Jesus. He gives you Jesus. Those who are victorious, he gives you Jesus. And then he says, I'll give each one a white stone. What's this white stone all about? Well, when the Israelites, led by Joshua, crossed into the promised land from the wilderness, so they're wandering in the wilderness, forty. when they cross into the promised land, right when they cross over, God gives them instructions to build an altar. And on that altar, he said to grab stones, big, large stones, and whitewash them. Make them white. And on those stones, I want you to carve the words of my covenant upon this rock, upon these rocks. And it became an altar that would forever signify that God was the one that brought us out of slavery and into the promised land. And this altar is to glorify the God who did all that. And then he says, I'm going to hand you a white stone and on it a new name. It seems like God is erecting your life as an altar for the glory of God. And he says that at the end, those who are victorious, those who are overcomers, it's like you become a part of that memorial altar to the living God. And on it, he writes a new name. Not the name of the covenant, but he writes a new name. So what's this name? Isaiah 56, it says, Even to them I will give them, give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. This was 700 years before Jesus came. This is speaking of God's intention that he wanted to create a people and give them a name that's even better than sons and daughters, even closer to his heart than a son and a daughter could be. I don't know how that gets closer. But he says, I'm going to give you my name. Revelation 22, verse 3, it says, No longer will anything be cursed. This is the end of the book, at the end of all things. No longer will anything be cursed. For the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads. So while we can take... While there can be a take that God will give each of us an individual name, there's some interpretations like that that's unique to us. But if we look closer, a new name that no one understands except those who receive it. And I know, man, sometimes people before they come to know Jesus, it's like, man, I don't understand Jesus. Jesus is lame. Jesus is weak. Jesus is old. Jesus is this. And they have a certain perspective of who Jesus is. But when you come in, and you come into the family, you yield your life. God, my sin is standing in the way. And I come and he adopts you into this family. And that name you see completely different because you understand the name. So I am his. Be known as the Lord's. So at the end, don't settle for compromised truth in a compromised world. As God's people, we've got to recognize that our sin, our selfishness, our pride fractures the image that God made inside of us. Never compromise with an enemy that wants to destroy you. He's craftier than you. He's wiser than you. He's been around much longer than you. And so when we're trying to play this kind of dual game, guess who wins? The enemy. Every time. Because he's smarter than you. The only way you keep the enemy at bay is when your hands are fully secured 
on the Lord and none other than Jesus himself. Be known as the Lord's. Wouldn't that be great? At the end of your life, imagine, of all the exploits you could have done, people say, man, he did a lot of interesting things. She did amazing things. But at the end, the thing that I love most about him is I could tell they were with Jesus. Let that be us. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for your word to Pergamum. Father, of a strong word of not finding ourselves at compromise with the world, compromised with our sexuality and in the areas of like porn, God, that just sometimes just goes untalked about. But God, we just kind of in our mind, like we just play these games and God gets me and no, repent in the name of Jesus. That enemy is toying with you, is playing with you, and keeping you from experiencing who Jesus really is. He'd much rather have you experience religion, dead religion, rather than the life, blood, uh, abundant life, life full of power that he's made you for. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us in our hearts. God, if there's any areas of compromise in us, that God, right now, that we would lay it at your altar God, it doesn't serve us. It doesn't serve you. God, it enslaves us. It diminishes us. It robs our humanity. It robs our heart of other people. God, these things that we've compromised with, God, right now, I pray that today, right now, we lay it on your altar. God, we give it to you. We hand it over. And Father, I pray that right now, God, that your Holy Spirit would come in its place and fill that void, fill that place in our hearts. God, teach us and train us what it means to be a follower of you and not a follower of culture or a compromised believer, but, Father, one that is solely dedicated to the glory of your name. God, because we're just so captivated by you, so enraptured by you, so just compelled by you, by your love, by how you pursue us, even in our sin. Father, you pursue us and you rescue us out of our pits. And Father, this is your grace here this morning to rescue us out of maybe pits that we've been under for years, maybe decades. And God's like, now's the time to offer it up to me. You're done with it. It's not serving you any longer, and I need it. In order for you to move and grow in the way I've designed you, I need it. You won't move on unless I have it. So you want to give it up? Father, let that answer in our heart be yes. Father, with this exchange, God, I pray that just fill us our hearts overflowing. Whatever, whatever habit or compromise with the world that, God, we're exchanging with you, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come in its place. Fill that area in our hearts. Fill us with your peace. Fill us with your life. Fill us with your identity. Fill us with the reality of what's going on around us, that this is a spiritual war that we've been born into, and, God, that you are training and equipping us to thrive in the midst of darkness. And part of us being able to do that is have moments like this with you where we get real. And we just say, God, I'm done with this compromise. I'm done with this compromised idea. I'm done with this compromised way of living. I'm done with this compromised habit. I give it to you in your hands. Take it. Father, I pray that, Lord, these things that you've just received in your hands... 
God, I pray that they won't be taken back out of your hands. But that, God, as you keep them in your hands, God, I pray that you would give us the strength and the vitality and the abundant life that we need to live without it. God, that your Holy Spirit would come and blow us away with your grace, blow us away with your love. But God, it comes to those whose hearts are not compromised. So Father, we just thank you for doing business with us this morning. Let us go out and be a blessing. Let us go out and bring abundant life. Let us go out and experience you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we hope this message has inspired you and challenged you to be the man or woman he's called you to be now and to see his kingdom grow in every area and arena of life. God is with you more than you know. For more information about our community here in Kansas City, please visit us online at citylifekc.org. And we'll see you next time on the City Life Podcast.